Very good morning to all of you. My name is Bobby, one of the pastors in Grace Baptist Church. It's my privilege right now to share God's word with all of us. Today's sermon is called Storm the Gates of Hell. It is a very uh, heavy title which I pray very hard and I ask God, God, is this really what you want me to speak? And God says, yeah, that's the way to go. Right, so, but I also want us to understand why do we call this Storming the Gates of Hell? What is the mission of the church? Develop devoted disciples. What is the vision of our church, Grace Baptist Church? It is to be a disciple-making church that transforms lives with the love and the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we do this? A pastor was candidating for a new position. This pastor was candidating for a new position in another church. And during the interview, he was asked this question. The interviewer asked him, What is your strategy to grow the church? The prospective candidate thought for a while, and then he replied, I will preach Jesus Christ. I will preach Jesus Christ. He did not get the job. The job went to someone else. Now, is there a strategy to grow the church? I will preach Jesus Christ. Is there a strategy to grow the church? This is a vexing question on every pastor or church leader's mind. When we say the word church, we are not referring to the building, but to the believers within the building who gathers here on a weekly basis for a time of worship, time of learning the word, and of course, serving together to advance the gospel. How does the church grow? How does believer bear fruit? This is an important question. The answer is simple. Believers are to tell others about Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus? What did Jesus do? And why? Jesus did it. I will preach Jesus Christ. Believers are to proclaim the gospel. God has ordered His plan his plan of salvation, of redemption, to involve you and I, human participation. It is a mystery. It is also a privilege. God's plan to advance the gospel involves the participation of His people because God wants humanity to reach humanity. God wants people, you and I, believers, to continue the work of bringing the gospel to the unsaved so what is God's plan to reach the entire world with the gospel? The answer is very plain and simple. God is calling men and women to fulfill the Great Commission. But God did not just call us, go and do it. God also empowers us to fulfill the task. The book of Acts records the invisible hand of God working behind the scene to fulfill the Great Commission. Let us jog our memory. Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, when Jesus was about to be ascended to heaven, he gave the, the disciples this assurance, Acts 1 it. What did Jesus say? He says that they will be empowered by the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 1, verse 15, the church at that time was about 120. Right? About 120. This is Acts chapter 1. Then, then we go to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, 50 days after Jesus' resurrection, 10 days after Jesus' ascension, the day of Pentecost is not a special 
superstitious day, but it was actually the feast of festivals. God chose His time, the perfect time. And on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came. The people were empowered. And then the church grew. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, the church grew to 3,000. 120, 3,000. And then we, we go to Acts chapter 3, the last time I preached here. What happened? Peter and, jo- and, Peter and John were on their way to the temple, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. We call this the ninth hour. They were doing what every pietistic Jew would do. They go to the temple to pray. And then what happened? God brings into their midst a man, an unnamed man, unknown man, who was a crippled. Together, these three men came together and God brought together a miracle of healing. This three may experience the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. Acts chapter 120, Acts chapter 2, 3,000, Acts chapter 3 become only one soul was saved. Why is it this way? Because God wants us to know that even one lordship is important to God. The gospel continues to advance. When we come to chapter 4 today, the story of the crippled beggar continues with the report the conversion of 5,000 people, Acts chapter 4, verse 4. Today we land at Acts chapter 4. Now, what is in store for our learning this morning? What is God's lesson for us? The key question that we are seeking to answer this morning is that do believers take proclamation of the gospel, proclamation of the word of God with seriousness? Do we take proclamation with seriousness? Now, what is proclamation? Proclaiming the gospel is not peddling a product. Convince people to buy it. In this case, to accept it. Proclamation of the gospel is not about helping people to live a better life. Proclamation goes beyond that. Proclamation of the gospel is the title of the sermon today, Storming the Gates of Hell. This is how serious it is. You familiar with this uh, acronym? This is not a picture, this is a four-letter word. Right. It's not year together with the eyeball and the nose. It's time for you only live once. You only live once. You find this acronym in YouTube, Instagram, in any form of communication written or verbal. YOLO has a twin brother. It's called YODO. You only die once. In a sense, the acronym is very true. The Bible tells us that we only live once and after that judgment. Hebrews 9.27 It is appointed unto man once to die. After that, judgment. So proclamation is storming the gates of hell. It is serious business. Lives are at stake. When we proclaim the gospel, we are not merely telling our story, Grace Baptist Church, 56 years history story. No. Not talking about my own life story and my family life story. When we proclaim the gospel, we are not telling this. We are telling God's story. We are are relating. We are telling people what God is doing since the beginning of human history. We are telling others the highest price the highest price offered in exchange for the souls of human beings. Every time we proclaim the gospel, every time we proclaim the gospel, we are storming the gates of hell. Satan certainly takes this act very seriously. And you can be sure that you will not be having an easy time if you are sharing Christ with those who do not know Christ. In storming the gates of hell, Understand that it is a process that reveals three interlocking elements which we will unpack today. 
So may I invite all of us, before we look at storming the gates of hell, join me in prayer. Dear God, we thank you that you have given your word, the Holy Bible, to teach us how to live as your children on earth. We know, Lord, that your word is more than just to inform us, but to transform, so that we can be more and more like your one and only Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we pray and give thanks. Amen. Let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 4, beginning from verse 1. Proclamation of the gospel begins with a basic step, obedience. And as they were speaking to the people, Peter and John, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. I will preach Jesus Christ. This is a strategy. And so happened, they were arrested. Why did the disciples preach Jesus Christ? Because it's the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 19, 20. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That's why to grow the church, to grow the body of believers, is to preach Jesus Christ. Now, but the people were unhappy. The authorities and the religious officials were unhappy. Who controls the teaching? Who controls the temple? The Sadducees were the most theologically conservative people, more conservative than Grace Baptist Church in the first century Judaism. Right Now, what is Judaism? Is Judaism the same as Christianity? No. Judaism is not the same as Christianity. So what is the difference? Christianity and Judaism both believe in one God who is almighty, omniscient, means all-knowing, omnipresent, Everywhere. God is eternal, God is infinite. Judaism and Christianity believe in a God who is holy, righteous, and just, while at the same time, loving, forgiving, merciful. So these are the similarities between Judaism and Christianity. Judaism and Christianity share the same Hebrew scripture that is the Old Testament as the authoritative word of God, although Christianity includes the New Testament. Judaism doesn't. But the all-important difference between Christianity and Judaism is this. Person of Jesus Christ. The difference is that their understanding of Jesus Christ. Christianity teaches that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies of a coming Messiah. Judaism often recognizes Jesus as a good teacher, perhaps even a prophet of God. But Judaism does not believe Jesus was a Messiah. Judaism strongly denies that Jesus was God or that such a sacrifice was necessary. So the Sadducees find the teachings about Jesus Christ offensive. What is this about Jesus' resurrection from the dead? They regarded the doctrine of the resurrection as unscriptural and therefore they are determined to ensure that it is impossible for the disciples to teach the kind of doctrine within the temple. Who is really in control? Very often, we tend to think that man has total control over things. Man has control over other fellow human beings as well. That's our thinking. By virtue of wealth, maybe health as well, status, knowledge, connections. Many people falsely believe that they are in control. And the surest way 
the surest way to exert control over another person is to put the person under lockup. And that's what the authorities and Sadducees did. But if they are really in control, we will not read verse 4. Not the authorities, not the Sadducees. The answer is fine, verse 4. The arrest didn't stop 5,000 people from believing because God is in control. When we storm the gates of hell, we are not in control, not for a minute. God is in control. We must do what? And this is the tagline. We must do what God can do. Bracket. Will do. And not we must do what we can do because we can do nothing. I repeat that again for our memory's sake. We must do what God can do. Not what we can do because we can do nothing. Psalm 127 verse 1 says like this, Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labors in vain. We can do nothing. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Abide in me. Without me, you can do nothing. And so just I mentioned about the three elements, our attitude, our activity, and our alignment. What is our attitude? We must do what God can and He will do, not what we can do. Now, do you have an attitude? Do you all have an attitude of glad acceptance of the Great Commission? Do we have that or it's more like an obligation, more like something that is forced upon us or do we really see that, hey, this is our mission in life? The question is this, what are you going to do about it? The answer is to respond in obedience. Don't wait for better condition. There's no better condition. A better timing, a better environment, a better group of people, more receptive where there's better affinity. There is no better when it concerns the proclamation of the gospel, because why? Satan will be on hand to make sure there's no better. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, now not every verse will be highlighted there because I want us to flip to the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2, what does it say? Preach the word. Are you ready? In season and out of season. The Great Commission says, go therefore make disciples. The careful rendition is actually as you go, as you go along, make disciples. It means that as you go about your way of life in your interaction with fellow human beings, be it your family, relatives, friends, colleagues, your neighbors, classmates, your gym buddies, some of you are very health conscious, or God buddies, as you go, make disciples. What is your attitude? We must do what God can and will do. Not we must do what we can do because we can't. Can't do anything. But our attitude must have this. Proclamation of the Bible, of the Gospel, involves our attitude. Now, do you have an attitude that speaks of glad, joyful acceptance of this mission for your life? Or is it only for some other people, special people? Do we have the kind of attitude the disciples responded in obedience. 5,000 people were saved. Acts 4.4, right? Time to go home and have a celebration. Time for a happy meal. The story does not end there. There's no happy meal. Because proclamation is a dynamic activity that invariably results in opposition. Proclamation of the gospel always had a pushback. 
Because the gospel is not palatable. It is not palatable to any human being. Why? Because it points out where we went wrong. Can you imagine that? Which already shut off one ear. Already shut off. When you tell me where we went wrong, I one ear will be, my one ear will be shut off. And then he went on to point out that the solution can only be found in another person's second ear shut off. Who are you to come? Who are you to come and criticize me and tell me what's right or what's wrong with me? It's not palatable with the gospel. So you will result in opposition. Ephesians chapter 6 goes like this. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies. This is a New Living Translation. But against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world. This is the unseen world we are talking about. When we are storming the gates of hell, when we are proclaiming the gospel, we are operating against an unseen world. Against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. When we preach the gospel, you have the right attitude. You come forward and share the gospel. It will result not in the red carpet rolled out in front of you and invite you to come again. No. It will result in both ears being closed. On the next day, the rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And they say, by what power or by what name did you do this? <clears throat> now, do not underestimate the power of the Sanhedrin. This is the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was the highest court. It was the highest court in the land. It's the apex, okay? it's, the, it's the pinnacle of both political and religious power in the first century Jerusalem. You recall it was the Sanhedrin that sentenced Jesus to death in Luke chapter 22, verse 66. And so verse 7, they says, By what power or by what name do you do this? That's how I quoted Augustine of Hippo. Without God, Man cannot. Without man, God will not. The apostle replied in verse 10, by the name of Jesus the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. Proclamation consists of only one main subject or topic for discussion. Jesus Christ and Christ alone. Verse 12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We proclaim Jesus Christ. The gospel or the good news is about Jesus substituting himself for us. This is good news. Jesus substituted himself for us. Jesus takes on the penalty of our sin. And therefore we preach Christ crucified. First Corinthians 1 verse 23. This is the saying of Paul. First Corinthians 1 Verse 23, Paul says, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and a folly, foolishness to people like you and I, the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both the Jews, both the non-Jews, you and I, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. When Paul, if Paul applies for the church, he will not qualify. Because he preached Christ crucified, he will not qualify. Now, come back to this. People do not oppose believers, believers for the sake of opposing you and I. 
when we preach the gospel, we face opposition not because they don't like you, I hope, not because they don't like you, but people oppose believers because of the message that we bring. Because of the message that we bring. To put it more bluntly, people oppose us because they oppose Christ. Nothing personal. They oppose Christ. Why they oppose Christ? If you are preaching Christ, people will oppose you. The apostles were with Jesus. The authorities realized that. But what struck the religious leader was the realization that these were uneducated, that means unschooled, common men, common men who are able to move 5,000 people with their message. One of the key obstacles to our telling others, one of the key obstacles, a very big one, a big rock that stands in our place when we want to tell others about Jesus is that we feel inadequate. We feel very inadequate. We are not ready. We don't, do not know enough. We are not trained. We are not equipped. We are not taught. The list goes on. You are not alone, you know. We are not alone. In Exodus chapter 4, verse 10, Moses said to the Lord, Oh my Lord, I am not eloquent either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Moses struggled. Moses struggled with that. Now, how did God reply Moses? Imagine Moses, the prince of Egypt. He's surely kidding us, isn't it? The prince of Egypt. He received the highest education in the universities of Egypt. But what did God say in Exodus 4, verse 11? Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? What makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? We are not taught, we are not equipped, we are not trained. Moses said the same thing. Moses struggled with that of inadequacy, but God says, hey, who made you? In the New Testament, there's another hero of the faith. First Corinthians chapter 2, Paul. Paul says in First Corinthians 2 verse 1, and, and I, Paul says, and I, when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech, or wisdom, that means eloquence. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Can you imagine? And my speech, verse 4 of Acts, uh, of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 4, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Paul says the same thing. Now, you and I are just regular worshippers or visitors to Grace Baptist Church. You did not go to Bible college. You are not a Bible scholar. At least Moses attended the University of Egypt. We recognize that. And Paul studied under the renowned uh, teacher Gamaliel. But you, sitting on the pews, are commoner. But think carefully. The 12 disciples of Jesus, none of them go on to take an O-level. Some of them didn't even make it past PSLE. Because the disciples were mostly fishermen. fishermen, And their claim to education is really homeschooling. Homeschooling, no tuition. We do not know enough. We are not taught. We are not trained. We are not equipped. My friends, what about SDS? Sunday Discipleship Seminar. What about Seekers Class? What about Meet God, Meet Week? Tuesday nights. The care groups, you meet alternate Saturdays or Fridays. Youth Ministry, Children Ministry, and even nursery. Think about it. This is Grace Baptist Church. 
there's enough space and place for you to be involved in learning. But what stands out was that the Sadducees and the temple authorities recognized that these people were the disciples of Jesus Christ. Remember this. We are not telling our story. We don't need eloquence of speech. We are telling God's story in whatever form, whatever way, whatever vernacular that we do. The verse went on to tell us from verses 14 to 16 that they realized, the Sanhedrin realized that there's nothing much they can do. But what happened in verse 17? But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them. And they charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus Christ. Proclamation centers on the person of Jesus Christ, who he is, what he do, and why did he do it. They didn't say, hey, charge them not to speak anymore, just keep quiet. No. Don't teach it anymore in the name of Jesus Christ because proclamation is one topic, one and only topic, and that is Jesus Christ. But Peter and John answered them whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God. Peter says, no, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. That is proclamation. Do not detour from the topic. The main topic is still Jesus Christ, what he, who He is, what He has done, and why He did it. They threatened them, and then they let them go. And then verse 22 says, For the man on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. 40 years old. Now think for a minute. Why tell us the age of the crippled beggar? The crippled beggar who was divinely healed in uh, the beginning of uh, in Acts chapter 3. Why tell us how old he is when you don't even tell us the man's name, isn't it? Why do I need to know this 40-year-old man? The answer is this, a mature man of 40 not only can testify independently, boldly, accurately. In addition, the fact that the man's crippled condition was not a recent accident, recent illness, but was a condition that was congenital from birth stretching over 40 long years. Acts chapter 3 verse 1 tells us that he was lame from birth. This is a 40-year-old man. After 40 years, God healed him. What did the apostles do when they were released from the remand prison? What did they do? They went to pray. Amazing, isn't it? They went to pray. The church takes prayer seriously. And then what did they pray about? That's how we read uh, Psalm chapter 2. This is the passage that was taken, uh, quoted from Psalm chapter 2. In their prayers, besides petitioning God, the believers bring to mind that God is in charge, who is in control, not the Sadducees, not the temple authorities. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan have predestined to take place. Who is in control? God is in control. God is in charge. Everything that happens in life, on earth, or in heaven, in eternity past, eternity, eternity future, comes under the will of God. Now, do you think for a moment eternity present will be any different? No. God is in charge. The Sanhedrin might threaten, but the threats did not result in prayers 
or those threats and intimidation to go away. Rather, the church prayed for boldness of speech. The apostles therefore prayed that they themselves might have the courage to continue to proclaim their message without fear and that God would place the seal, God's place the seal of protection upon them. The name of your holy servant Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, verse 9, the name which is above all names, if you can recall, Philippians chapter 2. The name of Jesus that is second to none. And then, of course, we remind her again, Acts 4, verse 12, today's text, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. When we face opposition, when we face persecution, we do not just pray that those things will go away, but we pray a lot for more courage. We pray to the Lord to give us more courage to be able to continue what we need to do because we must do what God can do and will do, not we can do what we can do because we can't do anything. Verse 31, And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. God hears. God hears. God answers our prayers. starts with our attitude, the first element. And then it talks about our activity or active participation. I want to be careful not to use the word activity, but rather active participation. Right? Activities uh, speaks of a noun, but active participation speaks of a verb. Proclamation involves your attitude. It also involves activity, your active participation. And, and when believers are active in proclaiming the gospel, you will encounter opposition. So be prepared for it, but not be defeated when opposition arises. We talk about attitude, we talk about activity. When attitude squares with active participation, you get a third element. The third element of your life. When we proclaim the gospel, when our attitude squares with our activity, it results in alignment. Now, the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of those things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. Everything in common. An interesting statement. The power of God's Spirit is at work on two fronts. Number one, the external or the visible front. The apostles continued to exercise their task of public testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Nothing else. To the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is a task that they tackle firmly, affirmed in their renewed experience from Acts chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, later we go on Acts chapter 5 and continue with Ananias and Sapphira, right? But God continues to work in their lives. So the external visible front when the Holy Spirit is working in the church. Yet they are not aggressive or they are rude. Everything is done with great grace. Verse 33. That was the external, the internal, the non-visible, non-visible life of the community, verse 32. It is just as important that the whole inner life of the church and its ordinary members, you and I, should also show the power of God at work. Otherwise, the testimony of the apostles will be undermined. The picture of the infant church, still in its first few weeks of life, is one in which the life of the Spirit is visible in the way Christians relate to each other. We talk many times about walking in the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit implies two things. That means the Holy Spirit sets direction. We seek His direction. At the same time, the Holy Spirit empowers. 
So when we say we walk in the Spirit, not only He shows us, but He empowers us. We, we got to continue to seek God's mind. Thank God for the song, Trinitarian song, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what we are involved in. When we storm the gates of hell, when we advance God's kingdom, the Holy Spirit is given to us. Become in a visible way as well as a non-visible way. This is the most basic function. Actually, this is the most basic function of the Holy Spirit. Much more than the gifts. Much more than that. The most basic function of the Holy Spirit. Paul calls it the koinonia. Second Corinthians chapter 3, verse 13, where we say the benediction. Paul calls it the koinonia, or the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And it has profound implication in the way we live out our lives in the actual realities of congregational life. There was not a needy person among them. Can you imagine at the time? Now therefore, the question I will ask at this time, is the church promoting an early form of communistic lifestyle? All right. Are we talking about that when we say that, hey, there was not a needy person among them. And then later on, we are, were introduced to this man called Joseph, who was also called Barnabas, the son of encouragement. The last verse ended with this man selling a few that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. It's a church promoting an early form of communism. Sell everything you have. Very nice, isn't it? It will be very good if everybody sells everything they have. Is the church promoting that? No, this is not an early form of communism, but a willingness, a willingness to put everything at the disposal of others. Why? Because the believers held their private property as a thrust to be used by God. What they have is because God has entrusted to them. Verse 34 says that those who could afford it sold their possessions as the need arose, those who can afford it. And what people sold was not their own homes. Bear in mind, what they sold was not their own home, but any disposable property that they happened to own. We find this in Luke, uh, in Acts chapter 2, verse 46 and 12, verse 12. The people still got houses to go home, uh, got homes to go back to. So they didn't sell their home. They don't become uh, homeless or poor. It may be very clear that the believers still kept their homes, but the object is not to disadvantage themselves. Okay, It's not to disadvantage themselves, but to use their surplus to use their surplus assets to raise money for those who are in need, not for those who need to buy another car or for those who need to buy a bigger house, but for those who are in need. Now, think about it. It's very easy for us to dismiss the early church as utopian. Wow, what kind of church? I want to join the church, but too bad. It's over. Right? Oh, the kind of church don't exist anymore in, in, in modern society. No. It is very easy for us to dismiss. This utopian state, this is a fantastic uh, place to be. No, the fact is, the interactive social care the, the social care provided by the practice actually in the early churches for their poor members make a huge impact, make a very huge impact on outsiders. And it also plays a vital part in the mission and growth of the church. Today, Grace Baptist Church, we thank God that there are still pockets of examples where you hear of congregation members rally together to look after the welfare of the poorer members. And we should continue to encourage this practice. In Grace Baptist Church, we have a care fund but we recognize, we recognize that for a church of this size, there may be some members who are in need of help, but the church leaders may not be made aware of. Have the right attitude. Then, involve in active participation. 
And when these two squares up, you have an alignment of life's ownership. When the church is serious about proclaiming the gospel, it transforms you and I. Your attitude, your activity leads to alignment in your life. You no longer live for yourself. You no longer live for yourself. It, it refines your understanding of ownership. You see everything as God's entrustment to you to exercise stewardship. You don't own those things, my friend. We don't own them. We only get to enjoy them only in this world. We get to enjoy them only in this world. You only get to experience these things temporarily until your life is over. I have tried to help you understand today's idea that the proclamation of the gospel involves attitude, involves active participation. And when these two are aligned, when these two are squared together, you get alignment individually and corporately as a church. Have an attitude of great acceptance of God's mission in your life. Some are called to be evangelists, but all are called to evangelize. Go and make disciples. It begins with a step of obedience. Respond in obedience. Inevitably, when you respond in obedience, it will result in opposition. The question is whether it is mild or strong opposition. But we all know who is in charge. That is God. If only every one of us reach out to share your testimony as a Christian, share the gospel to another person, we will see God at work. Because we must do what God can, record will do. Not we must do what we can do. We can do nothing. But God can do anything and everything, especially in saving the lost. Proclamation of the gospel is the responsibility of every believer. It is you and I. It's not somebody else, your friend next door. It's you and I. It's the responsibility of every believer in Grace Baptist Church. Whether you are a member or you are just a visitor, as long as you are a child of God, it is our responsibility. Do not shy away from it. Let's do three things. Number one, start with prayer. It is not easy to take a step of obedience, especially knowing that you will inevitably face opposition. You will lose friends, perhaps. You may even lose your family members, your colleagues. You may be bypassed for promotion. It is not easy to take this step of obedience to share the gospel. So start with prayer. Don't take it lightly. Start with prayer. Secondly, talk to the pastors, the elders, ministry leaders, and care group leaders. Talk to them. They may share something with you. They may point you to certain uh, areas, certain areas of need, certain, uh, certain uh, possibilities and probabilities. And the last thing is to do it. Do it. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, through the centuries, the gospel has reached communities, the gospel has reached countries, the gospel has reached continents. You have given the responsibility to your children to take the gospel to the unsaved. Nothing is too difficult for you. Raised from among this church, God, we ask many, not some, many men and women, young or old, to respond in obedience, to be prepared for opposition, and most of all, to joyfully recognize that our life's ownership belongs to none other but you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.